From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, the global marketing services ecosystem, organized to help CMOs in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. We have a great show today. We have one of the gurus of the media world, Stuart Brotman, and we're going to be talking about the future of media, especially television and radio. Stuart is chairman and CEO of American Television Experience, a global multimedia company involved in advisory services and venture development for multi-platform programming, services, and marketing. During Stewart's distinguished career, he has served as president and CEO of the Museum of Television and Radio and as the first concurrent appointment in digital media at Harvard and MIT as a research fellow at Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and as a visiting scholar at MIT's Comparative Media Studies program. During the Carter administration, he was special assistant to the president's principal, communications policy advisor, and chief of staff at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration in Washington. Stewart is the author and editor of four books, including Communications Law and Practice, the leading comprehensive treatise covering broadcasting, satellite, and telecommunications regulation, now in its 23rd edition. Welcome to Market Edge, Stuart. Thanks, Larry. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Stuart, just to start with, you know, give us a little context, you know, because about the, the television era. You know, a lot of uh, my friends, anyway, experts that I've spoken to said it's sort of an anomaly that, you know, it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years without it, and then it sort of came around, and now it's changing radically again. Could you just give it, the audience a little perspective from an expert on the medium? Sure. I wish we were in 2009 because I could tell you we would be in the 70th anniversary of the introduction of commercial television, which was at the World's Fair in New York, that famous flickering image. Uh, and right now on Broadway, as many people know, there's a show called The Farnsworth Invention, which talks about the uh, battle between Sarnoff and Farnsworth in terms of getting the technology out there. Uh, so basically we're about 70 years into the television experience, uh, and principally it's an American television experience which has then migrated around the world. So when we talk about television, we really are talking about primarily an American product. Clearly the technology has changed, and a lot of the technology obviously is manufactured abroad now. I think what's uh, been most compelling about television is that television became a medium that was integrated into the home and integrated in a very powerful and central way in the living room, in the uh, family room, so that families essentially began to organize their life, their interaction around this medium, which was far different than cinema. Cinema obviously had great power and continues to have great power, but typically you had to go someplace, you had to go to a movie theater, you had to assemble with a bunch of strangers, you had to darken the lights, 
and then have a common experience. Uh, that's different than television. Television has a much more intimate medium, and radio as well, as many of uh, the listeners would remember. Uh, radios used to be large, large uh, devices that were in living rooms or in family rooms, and uh, families literally sat around that big piece of wood and listened. And, of course, later on when we had television, it was much like that big piece of wood, except there was a little bit of a screen, and people watched that little screen. So I think uh, one of the profound influences of television it's, is its ability to become integrated into the physical setting of the home. And I think one of the great challenges and opportunities in this new world of television is how television migrates out of the home, out of the living room, into a variety of different settings. And as that migration happens, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear all the other, quote, experts talk about, you know, a complete integration of Internet, television, um, you know, that all the digital experiences are going to be combined. Is that a little dreamy, uh, you know, especially on the manufacturer's part? Uh, I think probably. I think maybe what a lot of people are missing is that television is a medium, and so it has protocols and conventions and things that we've grown up with. And so as we extend television through different technologies, some of the characteristics of that medium will remain, some of them will change. Uh, and so I think basically we have to keep our eye on the ball and try to distinguish what will uh, be with us from the historic elements of television and what will be created that's new. Television is not video. Video is obviously anything that we see visually, but television has a particular way that it organizes itself. It organizes ways to tell stories, to communicate messages. And this, you know, I often think it's almost a myth to talk about, or even an oxymoron, to talk about interactive television. You know, you know, I like to, I mean, I'm a big computer nut, but I also like to sit down now and then and just watch a program and, and watch a ball game or something like that. Tell me what you feel the real definition of interactive television is. Is there even such a thing as interactive television? What should we be thinking about? I think maybe to be more precise, we will have multiple ways to have interactivity with television as opposed to interactive television. And certainly what the array of new technologies is offering us are ways for us to now communicate with that medium, to offer input, to offer feedback, to help shape certain types of programming. Uh, so there are a lot of great opportunities out there, but fundamentally television has been a one-way medium and has been a mass medium. And certainly when we talk about one of its organizing principles, that organizing principle will remain. It will be one of the great mass media that we have in the world, probably the most dominant one. It's, uh, I, I, this is a little bit of a tangential question, Stuart, but, you know, you bring up this concept of mass media, uh, medium. The, um, you know, the, the great, you know, impact right now of social networks like Facebook and MySpace is they start adding video and, you know, and YouTube, of course, um, and all this whole first generation of social networks in a way is not micromedia. It's actually mass media when you look at 15, 16, you know, million people, you know, uh, going there. What do you think, I mean, is television at all 
part of that kind of thing as we move forward as as I see 20 somethings come into the office and the first thing they go to is Facebook I think it is I think clearly we have the first real video generation not in terms of people who are watching video, but people who are integrating video into their lives in the way that we integrated that television medium into our households. So now we have uh, virtually everyone who has the capability to create video, to upload video, to communicate video to their friends and family. Uh, I think one of the great aspects of the next revolution of television will be the combination of this user-generated video and professionally generated video. Uh, we're really going to be creating this uh, television omelet, I guess, is probably the best <laughs> way to think of it. Uh, but this is really the first opportunity where we have, as you say, masses of people who will have the ability to integrate or add video into the experience and clearly reflect their own tastes and preferences as well as the tastes and preferences of the professionals. And of course you're starting to see that, you know, in bits and pieces uh, all over. It sort of started, at least in my opinion, it started when the uh, the terrible tsunami happened and the BBC was taking, you know, and, and running, you know, video of people that had taken, uh, you know, videos through their, their telephones. And now even a couple of the recent primaries for the American presidential election, you'll see uh, uh, networks like CNN and NBC uh, actually showing uh, videos that, that people have taken of uh, people standing in line talking about the candidates, where it's going and incorporating it in a professional kind of thing. So this omelet idea seems to be have already begun. Right. We've seen this in the presidential debates this year. Clearly we have the, uh, the YouTube and the Facebook debates where we have user-generated video now competing with the questions of Brian Williams and Charles Gibson. So it's, uh, it's really an interesting, uh, I think it's a paradigm shift fundamentally in, in the television environment where you now will have that capability to have people add. One of the great ironies is 20 or 30 years ago, the television networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC at the time, had an absolute prohibition in the news division of using any video footage which was not shot by their professional camera people and editors. And now, of course, we see CNN, when you turn it on every day, is welcoming the contributions of people to send in some of their video footage from different events. It's a great point, Stuart. A friend of mine, Ed Fooey, who is, of course, one of the more well-known uh, uh, producers at CBS and responsible for a lot of 60 Minutes said they actually missed a lot of good news stories because of the cost of sending camera crews and, you know, trying to do, you know, the ultimate professional job that they just couldn't cover all the news and that actually it's sort of exciting with the cost going almost to zero uh, in some ways, you know, that we can actually be more informed, not less informed. Right, but if we stick to the television omelet metaphor, the eggs will still be television yeah. and everything else will be ingredients right. and clearly we're going to have some interesting combinations and omelets are a part of our life and now television omelets will be part of our life. Um, you know, 
a lot of our audience at Market Edge are marketers or senior executives at companies, and et cetera. Before we take a break, I want to start to dip into that whole world and the impact uh, a medium like television and even radio can have on businesses. Um, I guess I would start with, you know, it, like I say in my last book, we're, the web is moving to a, a visual era, a one that is going to be less text-based and one that's going to be more emotive and et cetera. How does professional programming fit maybe in a business world, you know, as it becomes more and more visually accessible? Well, again, let's go back to this idea that television has had certain conventions, and television principally is a storytelling me medium. When you combine that now with the power of video and the power of distribution over the web, we have a, a very, very powerful potential combination for advertisers and marketers. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, Mattel obviously has had a lot of problems with importing toys from China, a lot of bad reaction in the public, a lot of misperceptions. Uh, and this has happened continuously over time with Johnson & Johnson and Tylenol and a number of companies where they get into situations which are very difficult for the public to either understand or somehow may erode uh, the brand identity. In the old world, the typical pattern would be to take out an ad in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times saying we are aware of the problem, we apologize to the public. Uh, it's hard to imagine that being the 21st century response to the types of problems and issues that some of these companies were facing. So uh, had I been asked to advise Mattel recently, which I did not, uh, I certainly would have had them capture the power and the drama of what they were going through in terms of getting some of these toys recalled, uh, showing some of the issues that they're facing and doing it in this compelling video medium, probably communicating that through their web and their website and getting that out in a very viral way. Yeah, the, the impact that it's going to have on uh, all sorts of emotional sides of businesses. I would give you one example of uh, before the break of a next-generation pharmaceutical company here in the Boston area named Genzyme, who actually did some videos of their clinical trial, uh, clinical trials for a drug of a family whose daughter was in the clinical trial and the other families that just would watch every minute of that video because they had the same situation and wanted to see if this drug was working was very impactful for the company and, and myself as well. And, that, and that's the historic power of television. We have that response built in as a result of watching television for years and years, and now marketers and advertisers will be able to tap into that response if they shape the stories correctly, if they professionally produce, they distribute properly. So all of the classic lessons that we know from marketing and advertising still need to be applied, but certainly we now have the, the tools and ability to make them more profound. We're going to take a short uh, commercial break right now, but please stand by because we'll be right back at Market Edge with Stuart Brockman and more of this fascinating conversation. Market Edge will continue in just a moment.
Mr. Scott, I can't get any more information onto our website. I'm doing the best I can, Captain. There's no more room on the server. It's going to blow. Evaluation, Mr. Spock. The logical answer is Lunar Pages. Reputation, reliability, and legendary 24-7 support makes Lunar Pages the host to cling on to. Did you say cling on? Aye, Captain. Sign up at LunarPages.com and get $700 off coffee cup software absolutely free. If you call, they will answer. Lunar Pages it is. Beam us aboard, Mr. Scott. For out-of-this-world web hosting, Lunar Rocks. Sign up for web hosting with LunarPages.com and use coupon code LUNATICS to get $28 off. Faster than a speeding bullet, it's the super way to pay. It's Fast Transact. Fast Transact is the safe, secure, and fast way to process credit cards, online checks, and gift cards. Find multiple payment gateway and merchant account options to keep your costs down and sales up, up, and away. You can build your business empire in a single bound, while Fast Transact fights the never-ending battle to keep payment processing safe and secure. Your quest for an e-commerce solution has found its final destination. Fly over to FastTransact.com today. A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN-accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R. More than a name. Purse Strings with Maria Retail. No better person in joining me today than Audrey Reed Granger. What do you think makes an iconic brand? I give the example all the time of sitting in a big planning meeting here at Whirlpool Corporation. We're sitting in a meeting and we're discussing laundry. And we were in a room full of men and we were talking about a brand dedicated to women, Whirlpool brand. All the men were romanticizing laundry. They were talking about it as a quote and they wrote it up on the whiteboard as a labor of love. Maria, a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would classify it that way. Purse Strings. Purse strings. Live broadcast Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with Stuart Brock. Chairman and CEO of American Television Experience, and an expert on the future of television, radio, and the visual medium in spe- specifically. Stuart, we were ended the last section uh, really talking a bit about corporate or business involvement in television. I just want to go a little deeper there uh, right now. I come home and and my kids have finished their homework and they'll go watch television but they don't watch any advertising. Uh, they've TiVo'd, at least that's the name of our DVR. Uh, they've TiVo'd and they will watch if they have time three 24s in a row or two houses in a row and not have watched any advertising. What's going to happen? Well, again, we have this multi-platform environment, and so marketers and advertisers are going to have to think carefully about how they plot out their campaigns, not just through a single medium, the powerful medium of television in the living room, uh, but certainly through mobile technologies, through the web, through a variety of different mechanisms and a variety of different formats. I mean, clearly, uh, 
your daughters, as my kids, are into brands. They, uh, they're wearing the right sneaker and the right jean, and everything is branded these days. So certainly they're not immune to branding, and, in fact, they like branding. So it's a matter of reshaping brands to put them in a format and in a style that obviously people will accept in a variety of different ways. It just seems to me, I agree with that, but it just seems to me um, I made my daughters, uh, to continue the metaphor, sit down with me and not TiVo for once, that we are going to watch 124, it just happened to be that show, uh, which I didn't like, by the way. Uh, but anyway, I said, we're not going to take out the commercials. I want to see what's going on. And it seemed to be, and this is only a couple of weeks ago, that there, the... the uh, advertisers and the television professionals were playing a cat and mouse game with me. It was like, well, the show's going to start right now, but then it didn't start right now. We had sort of a, a little veer to the left and a little comment here and a little comment there. And it was all this, how do we get a message in there? And there's got to be a different way, you know. And is it back to the beginnings of television where, you know, you had this show and then the same people said, now here's the soap I use to wash my, you know. Well, again, uh, one of the major trends now is product integration. And what you're suggesting, which may well turn out to be the case, is, is so-called host integration where you actually have the host of the show or characters in the show identified with the brand, and we haven't had that for a number of years, but clearly we have a long history of very powerful images and sponsors. Arthur Godfrey in the early days of television and, and radio became very identified, uh, for example, with Lipton soups, which were just a powdered soup, and became a giant rage in the country because people had never really used soup uh, or use powder to make soup, and all of a sudden, there it was. So we had a, a, a number of people like that, and clearly we may have people, we see that certainly in the sports era, in the era of Nike, where, where sports athletes are identified very strongly with particular brands. So there's no reason that we can't have an extension of that through the characters and the hosts in the television environment. I was uh, speaking of, uh, you had mentioned briefly, mobile. Uh, I was in Japan recently and noticed people walking around and uh, waiting for a bus, actually watching television programs on their mobile phone. you think Americans will start doing that at any time soon? Well, part of it is what Mark Burnett calls the new 9 to 5 uh, or, or the new prime time. Mark Burnett, the creator of Survivor, says that the new prime time is 9 to 5. Basically, one of the great revolutions we have now is television has become integrated into the office environment. We used to just go home and watch television, but now if you walk into many offices, people in the business community may have CNBC on or MSNBC. People will have CNN in the lobby, as I just saw in your lobby. And clearly now with the web and the capability to receive so much television programming, everyone who has a laptop or desktop in front of them can put in a little window some video programming that is on a continuous basis. So it's going to be very interesting how programming now evolves to satisfy people as they work in addition to when they go home and want to relax. It is going to be. Uh, I don't know if Americans will watch like I, I read uh, 
an article that Koreans are averaging two hours of te television watching on their phone. I don't know if we'll go that far, but it seems to be more in snippets, you know, or, or maybe that's the wrong word, shorter sort of things. I yeah. think that's right. I think that's an example where the technology may affect the way that the programming is developed, but clearly mobile technology is based on short bursts, whether it's an IM message or an SMN or a short telephone call or a voicemail, and there's no reason to think that we might not have the same pattern with video, so the most popular programming may be the equivalent of a single, a three-minute piece of programming which people like and continue to watch over and over again. Also remember that getting back to the uh, nine to five prime time, we have people who leave the office who get on trains and buses and get in their cars and all of a sudden have a device that they can use during rush hour and traffic and everything else. So I think there will be programming that will be specifically designed to take advantage of the tens of millions of people coming to work and leaving work. You know, the uh, the blog sphere has created the opportunity that everybody's a journalist, you know, at, at any time, maybe some better than others, and that's why uh, the blog sphere. Also, I noticed my youngest uh, child, who's 11, uh, doesn't take pictures like his sisters do. He's only taking short videos and sending them to people, et cetera. Are we creating now this whole next generation of just visually oriented people, and that's the way we're going to communicate information? I think so. I think this is, again, a very profound shift in, in the way we interact with the technology and getting back to whether or not there's interactive television. As I said, there is interactivity with television, and clearly as people become more comfortable in the visual culture, particularly in terms of creating their own visual culture, we're going to see more and more of this. Um, you've been around a lot of the great academic institutions in this country and obviously have chatted with a lot of the intellectuals uh, and the digerati uh, that have a lot of opinions on things. A couple questions. Uh, what are some of the theories that my, our audience should know about about the, the future of the medium, one? And two, I'd really like to know, what are they teaching? If I want to get into television as a young person, you know, and I'm and, and some people are telling me, well, there isn't a big future in television, and some people are telling me, well, sure it is. There'll always be television. What are some of the greater schools teaching, and what are they doing about that? So it's a sort of a double question. Right. Well, let me take the second part first. I think many of the great communication schools and departments, as well as journalism schools, uh, are now becoming much more multidisciplinary. In the past, they typically had either former journalists or folks who had PhDs in communications, but now you'll find anthropologists and sociologists and technologists. So what's uh, very exciting from an educational standpoint is I think that these institutions will be able to train people in a much more multidisciplinary way, less in a skill-based way, because as you said, you're child, your children, have the ability to do a lot of the things right now. You don't need to necessarily send them to college to learn how to make a video. So now I think many of the things that people will be focusing on are the interactions between the technology and the audience, consumer behavior, how people like story shape. And clearly, because we're in an entirely global environment, we have this worldwide laboratory to see, as you suggest, 
what's happening in Korea. How does that apply to the United States? What are the differences in our culture? What could be adapted from other parts of the world? The um, maybe we could concentrate a little bit, just uh, a couple a couple minutes on radio and why we've seen sort of a mix of success in radio on the web and you know satellite radio which is a whole different sort of thing which still isn't really covering its costs uh and you know the the you know yet podcasts seem to have done pretty well you know that, uh, from a downloadable and obviously iTunes and music and stuff Where's radio going in all this? I think one of the real struggles that's going on now is actually within the radio industry itself, whether or not the radio industry is an industry that focuses on that particular medium, which is the over-the-air transmission of audio signals, or whether it's part of a much larger stream of audio. And one of the major policy issues that's going on now in the merger, potential merger of XM and Sirius they argue that they're competing with podcasts and iPods and every other type of audio input, and therefore they don't control a lot of the market. So to the extent that we begin to think of radio not as radio but as part of this larger audio environment, then there are enormous opportunities. Some of the most successful radio programming now is not done on a local basis. Clearly, we've seen the reemergence of NPR and many of the NPR stations, not because they are popular when you turn, turn them on in the car, but again, because people have them tuned in in their offices and their homes during the day. And so uh, Internet has been a tremendous asset to radio, and I think many radio station owners now need to begin to think about how they take their local medium and put it into a worldwide context. Stuart, you spent a lot of your career as uh, the CEO of the Museum of Television and Radio in New York City. I bet a lot of my audience hasn't been to that museum. Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect if we go to that place? And where is it in New York, by the way? Well, it's both in New York and Los Angeles. In New York, it's on 52nd Street, right off of Fifth Avenue. And in Los Angeles, it's actually in Beverly Hills on Beverly Boulevard, which is relatively close to Rodeo Drive. Uh, I am the last president of the Museum of Television and Radio since I left. The museum has actually changed its focus and name. It's now called the Paley Center for Media. I ran a completely public institution so that all of the assets of the institution were devoted for the public to come and see and experience. They have changed the focus of the museum, so now it's primarily an industry-oriented center where executives come to talk about issues. Uh, what remains a common thread in my tenure and the existing institution is a very large archive of television and radio programming, about 140,000 hours, which are still available for people to come in and experience. Uh, primarily, it's on the video end, on the television end, and there you have programming that dates back to the very early days of the World's Fair that I spoke about through the current. And clearly there are some very interesting collections there, uh, including one that I put together, which is called the 9-11 Collection. We got 52 countries to contribute their coverage of 9-11 wow. to several days. And so now you can imagine 100 years from now when scholars and other people are interested in 
finding out what 9-11 was, you could see how it was covered in India and Japan and Korea and South Africa, as well as the United States. Yeah, and, you know, that's an interesting point. You know, the sort of the whole way historical records ha are going to be kept now and the way future historians will study the past will be much more visual in nature, don't you think? Oh, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we did the same thing with the tsunami and with Katrina. But many of these major world events now are clearly events that we experience and understand through television. You know, we're, we're winding down our, our half hour. I can't believe how fast it goes. But I've got to ask you this, this, this last question. Um, you know, let's let's move 25 years ahead, or you know, actually, let's move to the hundredth anniversary of the television. Okay, so we're we're 31 years away. So I guess that would make it uh, 2039. Okay, <laughs> and I'd love your opinion if it, you wake up in 2039. How are you being entertained? How are you engaging in the world? What is it? What is it going to look like, not to, to, to put you on the uh, Mr. Future spot here? <laughs> well, what's, uh, what's interesting is I think we really are at the beginning of this new era so that 30 or 40 years from now we will be able to look back and trace where we are now. Uh, and it will not look all that much different in terms of where we're going. Uh, as I said, we're going to have a high amount of interact interactivity with television meaning that we will not only look for entertainment, but we will be entertaining ourselves. We'll be creating new programming. We'll be interacting with the programming that's on there. And then getting back to my original theme, we still will have these traditional conventions of television. We still love stories. That's just the nature. It precedes television. We have literature. We have books. We have oral storytelling. That's the nature of how we communicate our lives. And so television will still be a profound and powerful medium for storytelling. Stuart Brotman, the uh, C chairman and CEO of American Television Experience, a global multimedia company involved in services and venture development for multi-platform programming, and an expert in the future of television and radio. Thanks a lot for being on Market Edge. Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, and thanks, everyone in the audience, for listening to today's Market Edge conversation. Tune in again next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time at webmasterradio.fm for another exciting half hour of Market Edge. Thank you. <laughs>